Today we're going to spend just a little bit of time, and it'd probably be a lot faster than I planned, uh, to talk about this book by Jarrett Stevens. And if you're new to the class, uh, maybe even to the church, you might say, well, I don't know him, but he uh, used to be our teaching pastor here and now is the pastor at Champion Baptist Church, and just an outstanding book. And then, because so many people have asked for it, I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about Afghanistan, the Taliban, and what kind of close and prayer for Afghanistan. And I do appreciate Pastor Pastor Graham talking about that issue today. And if you want to understand the book, it really is broken into three sections. Uh, the first section is three chapters that God is always there. Then there's seven chapters on he's always working. And then a final two chapters, always faithful. And so I thought I would share some of this. It is a book that I would commend to you. And oftentimes in the past, the church has maybe encouraged you to read a book during the summer. This would certainly be a very good book, especially in light of everything that's happening in our world right now. So let's get into this. The first one, uh, first chapter is God is always seen. But one of the things I like about Jared is he talks about some of the doubts that we have. Does God really see me? If so, why does it feel like he doesn't? This is a question I've had. I mean, intellectually, I know that God sees everything in the world. But God, are you seeing what's happening in terms of this injustice? Are you seeing what's happening in our world around us? And um, the scriptures use oftentimes what's called anthropomorphism. It's a real big word. You can impress your friends with it. But it's the idea of sometimes ascribing human characteristics to God. And you see some examples of that in Psalm 33. The Lord looks down from heaven. Then I highlighted all the times we see the word all. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all of the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. Now, does that mean God has eyes? Not necessarily, but uh, the point is being made that just as we see things, God is aware of them as well. Another example, Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on evil and the good. And as we see some of the things that have been unfolding first in this country, now in countries across uh, the ocean, we begin to say, well, God, do you see this? Well, God does. That's the first one. God is not only always seen, he's what? Always hearing. Again, we'll use this idea of anthropomorphism. Does God really hear me? If so, what about my unanswered prayers? Jared does a very good job of reminding us that the scriptures do tell us that God's and the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save or his ear dull, that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so he does not hear. Now, because he's a, a younger person, he uses kind of the idea of a cell phone here that, you know, when you call, sometimes you get the cell phone ID and you go, OK, I know who that is and either I'm going to take it or I'm going to not take it. You know how that goes. But he then uses that illustration to say that sometimes you don't want to hear from an individual. I get a lot of those because I've contributed to various political organizations and ministry organizations. I don't mind taking the calls from David Jeremiah, for example. Pastor Graham mentioned him or something else. But some of these others like, oh, really, I don't want that. Or they always are trying to sell me a warranty for my car. Okay, some of these I do tend to block, and that's what sin does. You know, when you have a sin, in some respects... People say, well, why isn't God hearing? Well, maybe it is your sin that is blocking you. He uses a different example in 
terms that sometimes we have drop calls. I don't know about you, but we're going up and down 75 sometimes. It doesn't seem to transfer from one cell phone tower to the other, and you get a drop call. Well, he talks about that sometimes or unbelief. It's a really great chapter in which he uses kind of the metaphor of a cell phone to talk about that, but then closes with a lot of great stories. And again, one of the things I've always loved about Jared Stevens, he uses lots of scripture. He also has some great stories and illustration, but he uses the example of Hezekiah, prayed to the Lord and trusted God no matter what God decided. I think Pastor Graham told his testimony today, the age of, he thinks, 15 or 16. You know, this is what God you called me to do. And I'm going to do it. And uh, that is certainly one aspect of that as well. God is always seeing. God is always hearing. God is always what? Speaking. Does God really speak? I'm listening if he's speaking, but I don't get it. And so he takes us, of course, to Moses in the burning bush. And also just this long list, which remind me very much of a message I've given. So I didn't know if he borrowed it from it or we've just found the same sources here of all the ways in which God speaks to us. Because God speaks to us through his creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. God speaks to us through our conscience. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago when Pastor Graham was taking us through the essential gospel. God speaks through circumstances. I oftentimes use a passage in the book of Acts to illustrate that. That God speaks through prayer and through the Bible. Second Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God or in, uh, God breathed. Also through the Holy Spirit, we have that today in the message by Pastor Graham, and also through wise counsel that uh, many times through a multitude of counselors we can determine what God wants uh, to us to do. So God speaks to us, but then again, as I love Jared in his book, what about the silence of God? Are there times when you've prayed? Are there times when you feel like you're obedient to his word and you ask God, what do you want me to do? Or, God, why did this happen? And there really is no answer. And that, I think, is one of the great challenges for mature Christians to recognize that God is speaking, but there are times when God does not, and God allows that to happen. We have a book in the Old Testament called the Book of Job that, in some respects, you have a silence of God for a period of time before God then speaks. So again, these are the first three chapters about that. Then I'm going to move through the seven others that also help us understand that God is pursuing the lost. Why isn't God pursuing this person I love who is far from him? And oftentimes people are lost, but still God may be pursuing them. It reminds us of this great message uh, that was put together by Francis Thomas, uh, Thompson excuse me, of the Hound of Heaven. That Jesus is the hound of heaven, always pursuing. Or you can think of the prodigal son, um, the image there of the father who sees the son and runs to him. Now, an older person in the ancient Middle East would not run. That was undignified. But yet he runs to his son and he kisses him before the son can even get out his apology. And so Jesus is in the business of seeking and saving the lost. But even as we're asking God to pursue individuals, uh, Jared asked, who is the one? Remember last year we had this as our emphasis here in the church. Who is your one or who is your five uh, that you are pursuing, that you are praying for, that you want to witness to? And here, once again, we see in John 20, as the Father sent me, what? I am sending you. So as we talk about pursuing the lost, Let's think about our responsibility there as well.
Another example is God is also restoring the broken. Can God truly restore my life is a question people ask. Reminds us of this famous poem. Uh, Jared tells the story that oftentimes when they're driving down the road, um, especially at night, he says sometimes my dad would drive at night because the kids would be asleep in the back. Best time to drive when you're going long distances. But one time he woke up and he heard his father speaking and he asked his father what he was doing. He said, well, I'd memorized different poems uh, when I was, I guess he was like an English major or something like that, and I used those to stay awake. And one of those poems is the famous poem, The Touch of the Master's Hand by Myra Brooks Welch. Many of us know it through the music, the contemporary Christian song, Touched by a Master's Hand, and how, in some respects, in the Master's Hand, this violin was seen to be valuable. And then he reminds us of the fact that also, when Jeremiah was saying, well, what is God going to do? God tells Jeremiah to go and watch a potter. And making a pot, uh, but as he's, that the potter is making it, it falls over, so he makes it again. And the implication is, is that he's the master potter. He can make you into what he wants you to be. And we, of course, had a great message today by Pastor Graham about that. Then takes a few two stories, very familiar, of the woman caught in adultery. And then also, F is for failure, uh, the fact that on three separate occasions, um, Peter denies the Lord, but then we see that God restores him as well. And so we see great illustrations that God is in the business of healing the broken. Another one, which we need right now more than ever, calming the anxious. I worry all the time. I need God to calm my anxiety. How do I get peace? And that takes us, of course, to a very famous passage in Philippians chapter 4. First of all, the focus on the fact that we should uh, give our minds to Christ. And as we give minds, our minds to Christ, he will give us that peace. And then the next verse talking about also that we not only give our minds to Christ, but we also pray for peace in the midst of it. And a great uh, quote from Max Lucado's recent book on anxiety, no one can pray and worry at the same time. So how important prayer is in midst of anxiety that we might face. And one other verse from this passage, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Some great promises that are in all of the various chapters by Jarrett Stevens. One more, the idea of encouraging the faithful. My fears are overwhelming me. How do I keep moving forward in the face of fear? And he reminds us of and takes us through all sorts of individuals in the Old and New Testament that had to face fear. David, Daniel, Peter, Stephen, Paul, John, to mention just a few. And then reminds us that even as we face our fear, first of all, we can see that God is with us. You can see in Matthew 1 that you shall name him, what? Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. And then number two, not only God is with us, God is in us. I put down John 14, verses 16 through 17, but I might as well put down Romans 8, which we just covered a minute ago. And since Pastor Graham did such a good job, I'm going to keep moving because he did a great job of talking about Christ living in us, the Holy Spirit living in us as well. Another ministry of God is comforting the lonely. 
I feel so lonely. I feel so alone. I do, can God do something about my loneliness? And here is where he really emphasizes the fact that we are created in God's image, the Imago Dei. We were made for relationships. Just as Pastor Graham was saying, we still have, and I was, the other day I wrote a piece that was in the Christian Post in a response to one of these articles saying that there were estimates that at least a quarter of individuals who were in church two years ago still are not in church today. Sometimes they say COVID or a variety of other things, but part of it is kind of like, well, I'll just watch church online. And I appreciate Pastor Graham saying, no, we need relationships. We need the encouragement. We need the accountability that comes face to face. And if anything, you can see that the scriptures remind us of the fact that the stories in this Bible are not just about good people that do good things. Sometimes it talks about real people with real problems. And what we need is biblical community. This is the horizontal dimension of how God comforts us in our loneliness. And again, one of the things that Parker has done these many years in this class is to emphasize ways in which we can have fellowship and relationship. Otherwise, you're just looking at the back of everybody's head in front of you. That's not quite the same as getting to know individuals. And so we want you to meet with us. And if you're new to the class, please take the time to come when we have various kinds of lunch opportunities. Even tonight, if you just want to come and kind of watch all of the uh, issues of, of the service and uh, leadership that is taking place, because we really want to be able to minister to you, encourage you, and provide accountability so that you can grow in the Christian faith. In addition to that, he also has a chapter on helping the angry. One of the interesting lines in there is there was a professor at the University of California at Irvine that talks about an anger incubator. And again, Pastor Graham mentioned that. Have you noticed people are a lot angrier? Have you noticed a little bit more road rage out there on the streets here and just all sorts of issues, all that we have been through, people's temper, people's patience is much shorter, and it's certainly one that we have to address as well. He's got a whole chapter on that. Gives us a couple of verses. Be not quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. And, of course, a very famous one in the New Testament, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Why is there anger? Sometimes it's hurt. Sometimes it's injustice. Sometimes fear. Sometimes frustration. And certainly that is the case. And then finally, forgiving the guilty. Um, we were never really designed to feel shame. It's interesting that after the sin of Adam and Eve, they felt what? Shame. Shame came into the garden because of sin. And so you have shame, you have guilt. Uh, guilt is really violating the law. Shame is the painful emotion that surfaces from that. And so again, of the value of the Holy Spirit, which Pastor Graham preached on this week and will be preaching on again next week as we finish off those verses in the first couple of verses of chapter 8 on the Holy Spirit. But again, we should choose the gospel over guilt, confession over concealment, Facts over feelings. And so then at the very end, he has uh, two chapters that uh, talk about, first of all, that we should trust in God. Uh, we should trust God as God is first our father. God is also our shepherd. But then he goes into this long discussion about, well, if God is the shepherd, then that means we are sheep. And there's a whole sermon that you can give here 
Sheep are easily distracted. (laughs) Sheep are easily deceived. And sheep are easily distressed. And so you can begin to see that um, we as sheep certainly do need a shepherd. And then finally, he spends a little bit of time talking about hope in God. And I thought I would just read from that real quickly because one of the illustrations he uses comes from uh, Dick DeWitt, who was the chairman of the deacon just recently, and Marvel DeWitt. And many of you know them here at Prestonwood. But he talks about how, in some respects, they are his adopted parents. And he's uh, so benefited from them. But if you're not familiar with that, Dick and Marvel met, um, I believe, yeah, at uh, State University of New York in Oswego. They dated. Uh, then he took a job in New York City. I think later he was in Florida, but eventually ended up in Buffalo, New York. I know Dick DeWitt and... Um, Norm Sanju knew each other very well when they were both in Buffalo. But anyway, when um, they were in Jacksonville, they had their son, Kurt, and then later they had their daughter, Amy, whose birth was a bit of a miracle. The First of all, the doctors told Dick and Marvel that there would be only one in five chance that Amy, their baby, would survive. Not only was she born and healthy, but this miracle was one that actually brought the pediatrician to faith. Well, if you don't know Dick and Marvel DeWitt's story, it is a sad one indeed, because first of all, uh, Dick and Marvel received a phone call in 1997, the kind of phone call no parent would ever want, and that is that their son, uh, Kurt, was in a car driven off the road into a ditch by a drunk driver and died. So they had lost their son, Kurt, and uh, that is something we've known for many years. Matter of fact, when uh, Dick DeWitt first came to Dallas, somebody encouraged me to interview him because he was the head of Marketplace Chaplains. And then we began to hear the story, the very sad story about Amy, who had, uh, was it a sarcoma, if I remember right? And uh, eventually what uh, Jarrett says is, I'll never forget receiving the text from Dick on a Friday night in May 2020. It simply read, Amy is home. And then talking about, in some respects, how can I even preach on a message in that regard? Because, in some respects, we see that in First Thessalonians 4.13, and in the summer we're going to be, or I mean in the fall, I should say, we're going to be talking about First Thessalonians. It talks about the fact that we should not grieve as those who have no hope. And so he talks about just the hope in the midst of losing first your son and then your daughter. And how, in some respects, hope is a rope and the need for us to trust in the power of God, recognize that this world is not our final home, and if nothing else, to uh, trust in God of hope. And so it's a very powerful book. I would highly recommend that you get a copy of it. And as we are going through a very difficult and tumultuous time right now, I can't think of a better book to talk about. The Always God is one that I might commend to you. But in the time remaining, certainly let us, if we can, encourage you to get a copy of the book. But also, I think that uh, many of you have been saying, okay, can you do something? Can you write something or maybe give us a little bit of perspective on what is happening in Afghanistan? Who are the Taliban that are now controlling that country? What do they believe? And most importantly, how can we pray? And we'll turn that over to E.J. at the end to pray not only for the needs in the class, but for this issue. Now, I will hasten to add that there are some really difficult things coming out 
of Afghanistan right now, so I'm going to be real careful of what I, what I share. Matter of fact, you probably don't want to read about some of the things that have been happening to these individuals. Uh, it is horrific, and I won't uh, do that at all. But if any of you feel like you need to leave, I would certainly understand that. But let's, if we can, for just a minute, give us some geographical understanding. One of the critics sometimes say, well, Americans are all concerned about Afghanistan. They couldn't find it on a map. Well, first of all, I think most of you could find it on a map, but let's remind ourselves of exactly what's going on right now, because here is Afghanistan. If you go to the west, Iran. If you go to the north, you have all the stand companies, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan. Don't forget, it has a slight border with China, but it completely borders Pakistan. And so when we talk about Afghanistan, it has, of course, been the graveyard of many empires. The British, the Russians, I think now we could say the United States. And so we're dealing with a country which um, is a very difficult and relatively isolated area of the world. And so while we talk about what is going on there, let me give you a little bit of history because I think one of the best books to give you a sense of history of how did we get to this point is a book written by Charles Dyer. Charles Dyer used to be a professor at Dallas Seminary, then at Moody Bible Institute, and he wrote this book about the ISIS crisis. And so I will take you from the Taliban to ISIS and then back to the Taliban. Everybody with me? And to follow this, I'm going to take what he calls five dots in history and go through them fairly quickly. And I'm going to go through them very quickly, so in some respects you may want to get the book, or even go to a website that we have at Probe that goes into it in more detail. But the first is when we talk about Afghanistan, we have to recognize that we really need to go back to the 1970s. And I know most of us are old enough to remember the 1970s, although some of you are younger and you were born after the 1970s. But we remember, I think those of us that are older, when Russia came in to Afghanistan and they then found themselves fighting against the Mujahideen. And the Mujahideen oftentimes were indirectly supported by the United States. And one of the leaders of the Mujahideen was... Osama bin Laden. Now, once the Mujahideen pushed Russia out, there was a vacuum. And in that vacuum came the Taliban. Now, the Taliban actually were students in Pakistan. I'll go more into them in just a minute. But they actually brought a very radical form of Islam that they had learned in Pakistan and India into Afghanistan. The leader of the Taliban at that time were Momar, Muhammad Omar, I should say. One of his lieutenants is a name as Baradar, who is now the new leader of the Taliban. We'll get to that in just a minute. But because Muhammad Omar allowed various terrorist groups to exist, that allowed Osama bin Laden to live in Afghanistan and to build what came to be known as Al-Qaeda. Some of you that are old enough might remember that then-President Bill Clinton actually fired some missiles into Afghanistan, hoping to actually kill Osama bin Laden. That did not happen. And that brings us now to our third dot, because al-Qaeda now began to develop, 
Al-Qaeda means the base, and it was the base of terrorist activities, and they carried out various attacks against the embassy in Kenya, the embassy in Tanzania, against Saudi Arabia, and also the attack ultimately 9-11. And so that then led the United States to then send troops first into Afghanistan, eventually into Iraq, and so Al-Qaeda ceased to be a, something that was controlled from Afghanistan. We now know that Osama bin Laden went over the border into Pakistan and lived there until he was taken out by the American military. And it became more of a franchise operation. And so the leader of Iraq was a man by the name of Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. Well, the United States, through various drones, have been able to take out all sorts of individuals. And so when the, indeed al-Zarqali was killed, then there was a new leader that came up from a different group, and that was a group called ISIS, the Islamic State of Iraq. And that leader was Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, and they dominated much of Iraq and Syria, but then we were able to take him out as well. All of this in the background is the Taliban never ceased to exist. It was in the various um, outskirts of Kabul and other places. And at one point when indeed there was a surrender of the Taliban, it was done by Abdul Ghani Baradar, the man who fought alongside Muhammad Omar. He spent time in prison uh, in Pakistan for a period of time, but then the United States and other countries encouraged him to leave, and it looks like he will now be the leader of the Taliban there in Afghanistan. Now, what did the Taliban believe? Well, let me, if I can, try to give you a brief history. That is, the word Taliban is the Pashto for students, and they are Sunni Muslims. They are those who studied um, in Pakistan, grew in power in Pakistan before they came to Afghanistan. They hold to a, a much more, if you will, almost puritanical version of the Quran, similar to Wahhabism. Now, Wahhabism is something we find in Saudi Arabia. Uh, many of the Wahhabi uh, followers were associated with those who actually fought against us and destroyed the World Trade Center and attacked the Pentagon, uh, the so-called uh, terrorist of 9-11. But Wahhab was an individual that actually wanted to bring about a reformation of Islam. Over time, Muslims tended to more contextualize the writings of um, Muhammad himself. And so they said, well, yes, some of these verses about fighting against the infidels and uh, engaging in killing those who were infidels, those were actually appropriate for the time in which Muhammad lived, but they don't apply today. But by the time you get to the 18th century, just as Christianity had a Protestant revolution or reformation, you also have the same kind of thing in Islam in which you had a Muslim reformation. And Wahhab said, no, these verses apply to this day. And you can see the problem that that creates because most of the Muslims that probably live next to you, I'm sure you have Muslims in your neighborhood, friends, neighbors, co-workers that are, they probably look at the Quran and say, well, that was something for Muhammad's day, but it's not for today. But if they believe that those verses, so-called verses of the sword, like Surah 9.5, apply to the day, 
if you want to call the Defense Department or Homeland Security, you can see that in some respects it has to do with how you interpret that particular holy book. I've had some people say, well, the Bible has uh, calls for people to go out and kill. For example, go out and kill the Amalekites. Well, there's a difference. Uh, there isn't anybody today saying we need to go out and kill the Amalekites. First of all, there aren't any Amalekites. But even so, um, the more uh, fundamentals or the more literal you believe the Bible, the more peace-loving you're probably going to be. Because the New Testament says that you should what? Love your enemies. Uh, you should turn the other cheek. But the more literal you take the Quran, the more likely you are to be a terrorist. Now, so they're in some respects in the tradition of Wahhabism, but it's even worse. It turns out that the Taliban follows a tradition known as Diobandi theology. We'll get into all the details, but there is a city called Dioband in India where they believe that all the traditions and studies that came after the Quran need to be getting rid of. So now you see that they have a very strict religious legalism in order to return back to the purity of the Quran. So that's why you see that the Taliban has been willing to destroy any archaeological find because that is idolatry from their point of view and it is rejecting any kind of activity. Uh, we can see that now that they have seized the capital city of Kabul, they want to actually have a ceremony to rename the country the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. Now, when they were in power before, they actually banned television, music, the cinema. There was one person that was persecuted for flying a kite uh, back in Taliban, Afghanistan. Women must wear burqas. They disapproved of girls going to school. As one jokester said the other day, gosh, they sound like the governor of New York. They banned uh, uh, bars and restaurants and schools and everything. Um, because in some respects, this is going to be a very strict and very legalistic Muslim world. And as a result, the Taliban would like to even go into other countries like Saudi Arabia and remove the kings, um, actually take over Mecca, uh, remove all of the traditions that don't go all the way back to the Quran. This is a very radical view uh, that they hold to. And of course, if you've been paying attention, and I won't go into much of this, but again, these are just a couple of the sad stories that have come out in the last couple of days. We have approximately 15,000 Americans that are still in Afghanistan and maybe 80,000 Afghans that in one way or another are tied to the United States, translators, government officials, whatever. And so the Taliban in some of the northern provinces have already gone through and killed anybody that they could find that they thought was part of the government. They also ordered those religious leaders to provide them with a list of girls under the age of 15 or widows under the age of 45 for a marriage, if you will, to the Taliban fighters. Because in the Quran it talks about that these are the spoils of war. These are people reading the Quran in a much more literalist way than any other Muslim group we've probably ever seen. This is even more incredible. They're going door to door to find and kill people who served under the government of Hamid Karzai. So this is very dangerous to those individuals. 
And again, as we pray, uh, let's also pray for our fellow believers, because this came from our friend Jim Dennison, that the Taliban now have been going in grabbing the phones of individuals, and if they find a Bible app on their phone, killing those individuals. So that's how they're seeking out those people that are actually seen to be a threat to the purity of the Quran. And so these are the kinds of situations we find ourselves in. Just before we run out of time, I thought I might just read a little bit from one article that was written um, actually by uh, Dr. Michael Brown. Those of you that were with us at the men's retreat know that Dr. Michael Brown spoke to us, and I've always been very impressed with him. And he gives us a couple of his reflections on the Afghan disaster. Number one, this is President Biden's darkest moment. And, of course, when you see the Washington Press Corps, CNN, MSNBC criticizing him, you can see that that is certainly the case. He says, no amount of words or excuses will remove the harrowing images of our memory. And I won't read those, but we've seen some of those, perhaps. Uh, The legacy of this administration will be remembered in light of his statements back in July because this press conference in July 8th where we were assured that we were going to provide air cover, we were going to do what we can to uh, support those individuals as we withdraw. Um, Days later, they actually abandoned the Air Force, Bagram Air Force Base, which would have allowed for the um, evacuation of individuals. Afghanistan is a staunchly Muslim country But the Taliban are just much more extreme and draconian. You might want to read this because he goes into some other examples of that, including even some of the things that they want to put into their government, which they claim will be based upon Sharia law. Number five, we should follow the money trail. Of course, talking about spending $2 trillion um, in terms of blood and treasure and everything else. Also, I mentioned on Friday the other part of the money trail, because you notice that China, which does have a small border with Afghanistan, has already decided to actually acknowledge the Taliban and work with them. You say, why would China have the slightest interest in what's going on in Afghanistan? Follow the money. There are, without a doubt, at least $2 trillion worth of rare earth metals. Now, you might say, well, why would I care about rare earth metals? Well, if you want to produce solar panels, electric cars, Elon Musk has got to be really disappointed right now, and all the rare earth metals that are part of necessarily military production, $2 trillion of rare earth metals in Afghanistan, and China can certainly move in and harvest those. China produces rare earth metals, Um, Of course, now Afghanistan does. There's some in Africa, most of which now are under the control of the Chinese. You can see how that is a real concern for us just from a geopolitical point of view. A couple more. The swift victory of the Taliban will embolden Islamic terrorists worldwide. Right now, the United States is seen as a failure, as a failed state. Uh, Number seven, atrocities are already taking place. I won't read any of those, but they are just horrific. Number eight, we cannot forget the women and girls of Afghanistan. There's, by the way, a video if you want to see that. But again, I'll leave that to you. Number nine, we need to do some serious soul searching regarding foreign policy philosophy, you think? And number uh, ten, we must not forget the sacrifices made by so many Americans and others in Afghanistan. 
it gives you the list of all those who died. And I think Pastor Graham already did a very good job of uh, talking about that their death was not in vain. But again, we are dealing with a very sad time in American history indeed. So how can we pray? Uh, first of all, let me just say that there are some very good videos that have been produced by Michael Yosef. Uh, there's some great material that's come out through Franklin Graham and Graham Watts. I can mention quite a number of others, and certainly this one from the Voice of the Martyrs, How to Pray for Afghanistan. First of all, we need to pray for those in authority. First Timothy 2 says pray for those in authority. Right now, the British and the French are on the ground evacuating French and British citizens. And yet you hear Lloyd Austin, who is the Secretary of Defense, how many of you know who the Secretary of Defense is, for example, uh, is saying, we have, we're not sure we have the capability, but we need an order. Yes, we need an order from the President of the United States. And so what are we going to do uh, to rescue at least the Americans, if not these Afghanis? So that's a question. Number two, certainly pray for our fellow believers there, because many of them have said, we're just waiting to die. We, where would we go? How do we get there? How could we survive? And so the Voice of the Martyrs gives you some very important prayer targets as well. So you might say, well, can I do more than pray? Can I give? And, of course, a lot of us have been talking about the Nazarene Fund. I may start talking about that on point of view. The Nazarene Fund was originally developed to get people out of slavery and out of captivity. But I know that a number of individuals more recently have raised funds to use that to see what we can get some of these Afghan Christians out. But it's a, a difficult process at the very least. But certainly, I would, as we come to our time at the end here, encourage you uh, to pray for these very important issues in Afghanistan. And if you find yourself saying, well, I'd like to read a little bit more about some of this, you went through it very quickly, and I intentionally did so. But again, we have some of those books on Islam, a second book that I did that focused a lot more on terrorism, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and ISIS. Those are some of the books that we've had available. But also, I think we're going to want to um, have access to some of these booklets that we've made available in the past on Sharia law. What is it like to live under Sharia law in Saudi Arabia or in Yemen, but now in Afghanistan? And most importantly, with Islam, how do we even understand these ideas? How do I witness to my friends, my neighbors and coworkers that might be Muslim who are very different than the Taliban? And what we're finding is more and more Muslims are coming to become Christians, coming to the Lord, because they see Al-Qaeda, they see ISIS, they see the Taliban. And they say, is that what we believe as Muslims? And they're open to the gospel. So I think there's going to be a great opportunity for a spiritual harvest. But those are just a few of the very difficult things that I wanted to bring today. I'm sorry to always bring sad news, but that's what's in the news. And if you wanted to know how to think about it biblically, those are a few thoughts for you today. And let me turn it over to Parker and then to EJ to pray for those in Afghanistan.